are sanctioned Russian oligarchs using South Dakota privacy laws to hide money. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, September 8th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk with an IRS investigator about high-profile criminal cases in the state. We'll discuss drug trafficking cases that have been adjudicated and trust industry cases with ongoing investigations. Then, after 55 summers in Wind Cave, naturalist Don Frankfurt is retiring. We'll hear stories of science and community and how interpretation in the cave has changed over time. Plus, we take to the sidewalks of Sioux Falls for a look at one of the region's largest arts festivals. And Fresh Tracks is later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Supervisory Special Agent Tom Larson works in criminal investigation for the Internal Revenue Service. That work leads him into some of South Dakota's highest profile criminal investigations. Well, he stopped by SDPB studios in Sioux Falls yesterday. We talked about how many crimes involve an element of greed and the desire to steal money and then hide it. First, let's meet Tom Larson. Supervisory Special Agent Tom Larson, thanks for stopping by the studio. We appreciate getting to know you a little bit and the work that you do. Well, thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about how you came to this kind of investigative work. What's your background? I started uh, in college, actually, as thinking I was going to be a scientist and ended up uh, working security at the university where I was going to school and liked it. I liked it a lot. So I thought mm -hmm. I was going to change to a criminal justice um, major and thought I was going into law enforcement. Uh, however, in the rural area I was in, there wasn't a lot of, um, wasn't easy to get a job then as it is now in, in public sure. service. So I ended up going back to school and went to graduate school and got myself a master's in accounting and an MBA and then found that the IRS criminal investigation was a great place to merge those two. So I got to get into criminal justice, but also dealing with numbers, which I was pretty, always pretty good with and, and dealing with the uh, accounting side of it which I found interesting. Where does an investigation begin? Well, that all depends on the type of investigation we're doing, and our investigations are quite varied. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of investigations from the civil side of the IRS. The yeah. IRS, most of it is what we call a civil function, which means it's everything's based in civil law. So mm -hmm. if you're being examined, there's a collection activity, or just getting your refunds, taxes filed, it's all garnered under civil law. The criminal investigation side, which is a very small part of the IRS, we deal in criminal law. Mainly that's because of the criminal enforcement aspects of our tax system. But we also, because of our uh, specialty in, in numbers and dealing in finances, we also branch out into assisting in any kind of federal violations that might include financial stuff. Um, money laundering, particularly narcotics cases we assist with, and fraud and other things. So to talk about where our cases come from kind of depends on what type of case we're working. Primarily for our tax investigations, we get a lot of them uh, from fraud referrals from the civil side, your revenue officers and revenue agents, sure. the people who do audits and the ones who do collections. If they find someone is evading collection, evading payment of their taxes that's already been assessed, then maybe a revenue officer will, if they deem that it's significant enough that they think it might be a criminal matter, they'll refer it to us and we'll, we'll examine whether or not we want to take that on or not. Um, if someone's evading their taxes or trying to evade the assessment of it, uh, we might get a referral from revenue agents that are finding that. Um, we also do a lot of internal 
work to try to find cases. We have a scheme development center and a nationally coordinated investigations unit that actively try to find violators or potential violators, leads for investigations, and they send them to the field as well. We are hiring. If you have anybody out there who's interested in in unraveling complex financial Who are you uh, looking for? Like, who is the ideal recruit? Well, we really need a variety of people, but at a basis, we need some accounting. You don't have to have an accounting degree, but we do require like 15 semester hours of accounting and like 25 total hours of business credits. And then outside of that, it it really depends. We, We need people with um, computer forensic skills. We need people who have financial skills, obviously. Uh, but really, it's we need people who have, who are inquired, inquisitive minds, and who want to try to dig into a situation and can follow different paths to try to find what the truth is. Welcome back to In the Moment on listener-supported South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Let's get back to my conversation with Tom Larson. He's a supervisory special agent with the Internal Revenue Service. In partnership with other agencies, he investigates tax and financial crimes. In this segment, we talk about high-profile criminal cases in the state. I also asked Larson about the South Dakota trust industry and how state privacy laws impact ongoing investigations. How common is it for criminal activities to also have pretty significant financial components worth investigating? Very common. I mean, money rules the world, right? So most crimes, other than your crimes of passion, have a financial aspect to them, which is where we specialize. So like I said, we'll also get referrals from the Department of Criminal Investigation here in South Dakota has been a very good partner in finding some things that they find that may be, that they think are elevate to a federal crime. We get a lot of cases from other federal agencies, the U.S. Attorney's Office. We get involved in a lot of things outside of the tax avenue as well right. when, they're, when they're financially based. Like yeah. we, we do spend 10 to 12 percent of our investigative time in narcotics cases, trying to rob those narcotics organizations of the proceeds of, their, of right. uh, bringing the drugs in. South Dakota is still very much, when it comes to narcotics, an end-user state, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's meth, um, more and more fentanyl, cocaine, and other things like that. Um, it is still very much an end-user state, but there's still distribution within the state from when it comes in. So people aren't producing drugs in South Dakota. They're bringing them in from outside. What we'll investigate, especially our narcotics cases that we've had here in South Dakota, the U.S. Attorney's Office here and the DEA and, and Homeland Security Investigations and ourselves work together really well to try to unravel those and work back to where the drugs came from. So we'll start with the narcotics uh, traffickers here in South Dakota, but then we go back to where the source of supply is and where the money is going to try to track down who they're they're paying so hopefully we can find out then who is trafficking those drugs in. So, and, and oftentimes that will go um, back to Denver, California, Arizona, and oftentimes into Mexico. Tell me a little bit about some of the partnerships that you have not only with agencies but with the public and, and the private sector. Help us understand some of those connections and partnerships. Yeah, we work quite closely with uh, the Postal Inspection Service. Narcotics are sent through the mail more and more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that it was you know, mainly being smuggled in, and now it's easy to ship fent- fentanyl through the mail because it's very small to, to get potent quantities. Um, oftentimes they're shipping bulk ca- cash back through the mail as well. Um, and we also work with UPS and FedEx, obviously, if they find things that are suspicious. Uh, we also work quite well with the uh, banking community. Um, if they find suspicious activities, 
um, they are obligated to um, say if someone comes in and is uh, withdrawing more than $10,000 in cash, there's a currency transaction report that is filed that we get access to so we can see that. If they see um, unusual deposits into an account, particularly if they're like tax refunds, but they maybe are tax refund for someone else, but it's coming into another person's bank account, sure. sometimes they'll report those to us and we'll look into it and see what is causing that to happen. Now, those don't always end up in a criminal investigation. Sometimes they're legitimate, but we do look into those while we're trying to protect the system. And the banks are really good at, about trying to report that to us. And they have an obligation to do that as well. There are uh, anti-money laundering laws in federally that govern banks and what they have to do to help us stop that activity. Um, cyber crimes have become a, a much bigger deal. Um, as part of that, um, nationally, our agency has developed a, a cyber crimes unit that um, works extensively uh, through the dark web, but also in, in the open parts of the internet to try to find uh, crimes that are going on and has been pretty successful and um, has actually done some of the largest seizures um, in federal history, oftentimes dealing with cryptocurrencies that money launderers really like to use because they can transfer money into a cryptocurrency and then pull it out, change it out outside of the country very easily. So we've tried to get into that area quite a bit to try to stop um, money laundering and other criminal activities um, using cryptocurrency and on the dark web. Um, unfortunately, the areas we see in South Dakota quite a bit um, are romance scams and other online scams. Um, people who take advantage of oftentimes senior citizens, but uh, just others who, you know, in a very rural state can might be kind of lonely. And so they start communicating with someone online and then that person ends up being not who they said they were. And they're just manipulating that person in order to facilitate other frauds. Mm. It might be as simple as trying to get that person to send them money. But oftentimes it can be getting them to file fraudulent tax returns uh, for other people or um, the frauder uh, will be doing that and then sending the money to them, telling them that it's their money, asking them to pull it out and send it to someone else, maybe to pay off a debt they need or something of that matter, when really all it's doing is facilitating um, a, a different type of fraud. Mm. And the person who's a victim of it um, is unaware. You mentioned the banking industry in South Dakota has a huge thriving trust industry where money from all around the world is kept in trust in the state of South Dakota. What's mm -hmm. your job um, in investigating and finding dishonest trust activity or, 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 or money that is stored in South Dakota but may have been made in ways that don't obey the law? That is an avenue that we've always been concerned with. Um, and not that there's nothing wrong with the trust activity and in, trust industry in, in South Dakota as a whole, but the ways in which it might be used. Uh, it has come up more recently involved in some of the, we have an entire unit, not that big, maybe 10, 12 agents that are assisting on some of the Russian cases of Russian uh, oligarchs and others who are holding money in other places outside of Russia, mm -hmm. uh, and, but who are subject to sanctions right now. So we found that some of that stuff is being held in trusts in South Dakota. So we've had some of those agents who worked with the agents we have here to go and interview those uh, people who run those trusts and, and try to unravel where that money is coming from and, and who is the actual owner of it, the beneficial owner of it. So we also see a lot of like Chinese individuals, business owners and, and such. They'll want to keep their money out of the country, out of China, that is. Right. So they look at the U.S. as a, a safe place to hold their money, but they also don't want anyone in the Chinese government to know where the money is. So they are also doing it in the trust in South Dakota because of the privacy laws that South Dakota has. So what are you looking for as far as things that violate the privacy laws of South Dakota? Because you're limited then, right? We do have avenues for getting that information. If we determine there's enough to go forward with a crime and if... Um, say if we're working a case with the U.S. Attorney's Office, they determine it. So 
like we do in just about any investigation, we have two main avenues in which we can get people's bank information, maybe information from a trust. Administratively, if we're working a case internally, um, we can issue a summons, which is what the IRS does in audits and that type of thing to get bank records. Alternatively, if we're working a case with the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is what's considered a grand jury investigation, they're more secretive. Well, we're secretive with all of ours because tax information is always considered private, and so we are very tight-lipped with people's personal tax information. But in a grand jury investigation, the only people who have privilege to the information we're getting are the grand jury members themselves, the U.S. attorney, and the agents who are assisting on, on that investigation. And in those situations, the U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney who's assisting on that case will issue a subpoena. And we can go to the trust that's organizing that trust and get the data, the beneficial owner data, to that. But we don't just do that willy-nilly. We have to have a reason for it and have to have an open investigation and an understanding as to why we're doing it. So we don't just do that to everybody to get everybody's information. It's only in specific situations where we have an investigation open. Yeah. Let's bring it back to some cases that have been um, in the news lately. Is there anything you want to say about some of these cases that have been resolved? One of the, the more recent ones, it kind of touches on a victims, people being victimized by, by scammers. Two individuals who were recently convicted here in Sioux Falls, by, one by the name of Nathan Peachy and one uh, John Rick Weiner, that had uh, defrauded several individuals in South Dakota and around the country. It really was perpetuated in other places. Went to these individuals claiming they had a, a religious-based uh, investment company and were getting investments for that. They claimed there was no risk to their money. The money was um, just going to be used for the development in um, third world countries that benefit people, but there's no risk to it, which anytime tells you there's no risk to, to an investment, mm-hmm. be cautious because there's always a risk to an investment. Any adva- financial advisor will tell you that. Uh, what they ended up doing was they were taking people's money, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars from individuals, and shipping it in a variety of ways overseas, and it, most of it ended up in Norway. The head of this organization that they were purporting to work with had bought a luxury house outside of Oslo, and they put a lot of the money, several million dollars, into silver coins and actually just shipped it from the U.S. to uh, Norway, where they had it in boxes hidden in, in some safes and in different parts of the house and in the garage. I mean, it just it was not well organized there. We went into it with the U.S. Attorney's Office. So that case actually initiated from um, a small bank in South Dakota who had saw a lot of large transactions going from one of their elderly clients to, um, I believe it was to Nathan Peachy, and so they reported it to us that, that they thought this was suspicious. And from there, it led into something much bigger. Now, neither of those two gentlemen are from South Dakota, but they had several victims from South Dakota. And the U.S. Attorney's Office here has been a wonderful partner with us in, in going after these people that are victimizing people um, in South Dakota. And that developed into international case where uh, we ended up seizing all the silver in Norway, working with the Norwegian authorities who were wonderful um, to work with. Um, we seized the house, a luxury car, They've been able to sell that, and now we're trying to get that money back from Norway to us so that we can get that money back to the investors. Wow. How often do you come to a satisfying result? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of times the money's spent by the time we can get some more of the money spent. Um, As an example, the um, Robert Bloom cattle Ponzi scheme case that that we, we were involved in that along with the state investigators. And in a Ponzi scheme like that where the money's coming in and then uh, most of it is going back out to pay other investors, the money's gone before you come into it. So there's, we can work with the state. There they had a, um, a person who was set up to, to handle all that and try to separate what the assets were left to try to pay people back. But they're, they're getting pennies on the dollar back because yeah. most of it's gone. This was one where we did get a significant amount of it back, but they had spent some of it. Um, we're hoping that the price of silver had actually gone up. So when we sold it, we might be able to get mm-hmm. more, more back than we otherwise do. 
Um, we had another case, the woman's name right now, who had defrauded uh, the Rapid City Rush. And so that got brought to us by the Rapid City Police Department uh, to our agent in Rapid City, and, and he developed it and determined that you know several hundred thousand dollars had been stolen from them. Well, by the time we got involved and she got convicted and you know is sentenced to repay the money, they're not going to get all that money back because most of it was spent. Yeah. Uh, very similar to, we had another case in Rapid City where um, I think his name was Marcin Garbach, was a priest in the Rapid City Diocese who was stealing from, from a couple of churches there. We were able to, working with FBI and the, and the U.S. Attorney's Office there, unravel and come up with the amount of money that was stolen, and also working with the diocese, they were very good about helping us to determine that amount. But by the time we could get to everything, a lot of the money had been spent. We were able to, to claw back some of it and some of the things that were bought with the money, but you know, the diocese is not going to be made whole from that. We're going to get most of it that we can. Everything that we recovered, barring transaction costs of trying to sell stuff, right. we're going to give back to the diocese. But yeah, they're not going to get back everything that was stolen. Hmm. And right. so one of the things that makes um, anything from the IRS difficult to for the public to know about if they haven't had personal um, interaction with the IRS is your, your tax information is private. And we take that very seriously. So when we do a tax investigation, whether it turns out in the person we're investigating's favor and we close the investigation or whether we end up doing something with it, we can't share any of that information unless it's prosecuted. And once somebody is indicted or convicted, then, then it becomes public. But until that time, we can't discuss it okay. because both the grand jury process and the, their tax information is private. Yeah. Fascinating work that you're doing right here in South Dakota. Thanks for stopping by. Well, thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Seasonal park ranger Don Frankfurt estimates he's led more than 100,000 people through Wind Cave National Park. That's 100,000 people who have learned something new about a unique South Dakota landscape. Well, Don is retiring after 55 summers with the National Park Service at Wind Cave. I caught up with him earlier this week to talk about the summers he spent underground. A career in the National Park Service was not at all on my mind. 1962, we took this cross-country trip with my parents. My father at the time worked for the U.S. Postal Service, and he was a member of a postal workers' union. And every two summers, there'd be a convention of postal workers in some big city of, of the unions. And in 1962, it was held in Long Beach, California. My family decided, well, we're going to take a cross-country trip as a family, and we're going to visit national parks. There was nothing there that indicated anything about a future. At the time, I was an undergraduate at CCNY, that's City College of New York, and I was a biology major, and the plan was to go to dental school and become an orthodontist. Because oh, wow. <laughs> I had had braces as a kid, and I thought, oh, this is a neat racket, you know, a respectable medical career. You're not a doctor. You don't have to get up in the middle of the night to deliver babies. And as a regular dentist, I wouldn't have to be pulling teeth or drilling holes, you know, fixing people's smiles. On the return trip, we stopped at Carlsbad Caverns National Park in southeast New Mexico. We went on a tour. There were rangers that would walk up and down the line of visitors. It was a group of 300 people, they said, which by Wind Cave standards, that's huge. Right. <laughs> For Carlsbad Caverns, they said that was a small tour. Oh, wow. good grief. Four rangers, a leader, a trailer, and two guys walking up and down the line talking to visitors. And my mother, I'm pretty sure as my mother, asked a question of this, one of these roving rangers about his job. And he said that, no, he wasn't a permanent employee. He was a summer seasonal. Back to school, we had to take, as a science major, all the other sciences, basic courses. So as a biology major, I had to take chemistry, physics, geology, basic courses. 
When it came around to taking the geology course in my junior year, my thinking was, oh boy, we're going to sit around and look at boring rocks all day. <laughs> the lecture hall, we had our anatomy class. The previous class was the geology class. I can remember one of the professors gathering up little cardboard trays with rock samples before our lecture could begin. And that was my impression of geology, was looking at rock samples. And when I took this course, the basic course in geology, I went, wow. First of all, the geology department was made up of a, a cast of characters, some of them borderline crazy, <laughs> for sure, for sure. And they made it interesting by having guest lecturers each week. You know, one person would talk about one subject, another subject. So running water in streams and how that shapes the landscape one week. Next week, it might be shorelines, how waves and currents shape the shorelines. Next week, glaciers. The week after that, volcanoes. The work after that, earthquakes, geologic time, how underground water works and forms caves. I said, this is the science that explains the fantastic scenery you see in national parks. You know, we had seen a few on that trip. Yeah. We had been to Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Grand Canyon, some of the crown jewels. I switched majors and did better in school. Fall of 1966, I entered graduate school to get a master's. That was at the University of Connecticut. And after the first semester, spring semester, 67 now, well, maybe you should get a summer job, thinking to myself, because I had gotten other summer jobs previous summers, like camp counselor. I remember that conversation my, my mother had with this ranger. <laughs> National parks hire summer seasonal rangers. <laughs> and I went about applying for that. Nowadays, people apply for, for park service jobs. You apply through a government website called USA Jobs, and I think it lists all kinds of jobs in the government. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, the instructions were, go to a post office and get an application for federal employment. And I remember picking up one of these, well, a bunch of these forms at, a, at some local post office. I can remember if it was at school or at home. And the, these things were, I felt they were monstrously long. They were a packet that, that folded down and open and they had front and back and they were huge. And I filled out 10 of them from 10 different national parks, oh. um, basing where I wanted to go uh, on distance. <laughs> distance from New York. The closer it was to New York, the less desirable the park was. And that was the, that was the, that was, those were the criteria, or the criterion. Acadia National Park in Maine, beautiful park, never been there. I've had friends that work there. That was number 10, too close. And I've never been, never been. My second least desirable choice was Wind Cave, still too close to New York. And I was thinking, the West Coast. I was thinking Crater Lake in Oregon. I was thinking Lassen Volcanic in California. I was even thinking of Mount McKinley was called then. Now it's a Denali in Alaska. And I can't remember the other five parks. So I, I sent out the applications and, and I, I waited. My handwriting is terrible. So <laughs> I filled these out on a manual typewriter. I sent out 10 applications and I waited. And a few days later, I got a telegram. In fact, I even have the telegram with me right now. It was dated something like March 3rd, 1967. It was uh, signed by the superintendent of Wind Cave. And it was offering me a job as a summer seasonal national park ranger naturalist. And that's what we were called. Wow. If you worked in some parks, you were called a naturalist. There was like science or scenery to talk about. If you worked in a different park, different message, a, a, a ranger historian, those are the titles. Now we're all called interpreters. Sure. So here I get a, an offer from a park I really have no interest in going to, and I'm kind of bummed. 
you know, yeah, it's a National Park Service job for the summer. This is cool, but not where I want to go. Because, well, I was 22. I knew everything there was to know about everything, of course. Because my idea that national parks had rugged high mountains. They had roaring rivers and waterfalls. They had deep canyons. They didn't have caves underneath rolling grasslands. Eh, that's yeah. not a national park. So I figured I better talk to the superintendent who sent me the application to kind of feel out the situation. And the application went on to say that I would earn a GS, I would be rated a GS4 in government service, and I'd earn a salary based on an annual pay of $4,776, which I calculated a little while later, $2.29 an hour. Wow. So that's probably good money in 1967. I got him on the telephone, and I, it was probably I called on a rotary dial telephone, and he said to me these exact words, well, we'd certainly love to have you. He said it in this lilting Western twang, <laughs> English as I had never heard it spoken before because all I spoke was New York City Bronx. Yeah. And I replied to him, and I'll give it to you in New York City Bronx, well, I'm waiting to hear from some other parks. That's New York. And then he wanted to explain, say, well, you know, if you pass up on this opportunity, we'll have to hire somebody in your stead. No guarantees you're going to get hired by another park. And I figured, well, okay, here's an adult talking sense to a 22-year-old. I figured, okay, we'll do it for a summer. Eh, we'll try it out. It's a national park job. What the heck? And I had <laughs> the most wonderful time ever. And you um, still have the telegram. I still have the telegram. How did yeah. you get west then? Did you have a car? Yeah, um, a 1955 Chrysler New Yorker, <laughs> which, which yeah. I described on the registration as two-tone rust. <laughs> yeah, it, it made it out there. It was kind of a rough trip in an old, I mean, it was an old car by then. Yeah. Yeah, so drove out. It took me four days. Tell me a little bit about the community that you are immediately part of. There's seasonal housing provided for those who come from afar. It's you get charged rent for it okay. because there's maintenance and upkeep on it. So yeah, so so it gets it's taken out of your pay. So you know people your, your who are two dollars in some sense an hour pay is part yeah, of it of goes the, towards housing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Got it. Yeah, exactly that. It was called and it's still it's called Mission 66 Housing. In 1966, there was a push to upgrade facilities in national parks because that's the 50th anniversary of the Park Service. So it's basically like an infrastructure improvement. And they built these like motel-like housing areas and there's like 12 units there. There's also some trailers and some, they're called transit huts. These are buildings that are encased in aluminum that actually have hinges inside. They could be folded up and be transported off and look like about the size of a, of a semi-trailer. Okay. Yeah. And I wound up living in one of, one of those. And they were very nice. When it was 100 degrees out, the inside was 140. Uh -huh. When it was cold outside, the inside was minus 20. These uh -huh. things were terrible for insulation. Right. But other people lived in some of the other housing. Most of the people there, I'd say at least half the staff, were married, middle-aged men. These were school teachers, and this is what they did on their summer vacation. Sure. They came to work in a national park for a summer season. And these became, some of these folks became lifetime friends. They were my mentors. They were a great group of people. We had potlucks and fish fries. We had volleyball games. We'd go hiking in the park. We'd uh, go sightseeing in the area. We'd, we'd sit out at night and look at the stars. We got star charts so we could learn the stars and the constellation and the constellations and all. I mean, the social life was great. The work was fun. And I think maybe because we all lived in the same close-knit area, you know, we'd all come home and we'd want to sit on the stoop. I don't know if anybody still uses that word anymore. 
and tell stories about what went on in the day, what kind of visitors we had, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And some of you think that to me, that steps up the significance. These are families with kids, and you don't see that anymore because nowadays they hire a lot more single people because they have more needs for maintenance and resource management, so they hire a lot more people. They, they can't house one family in a housing unit. They have to have three or four sharing these little housing units. How did you learn about the cave and what were your first impressions of Wind Cave National Park? Well, they sent us a training manual, okay. which I read, and had information on how the cave formed, animal life, how to do programs, how to interact with the public, uh, history of the area, descriptions of the local region, what other attractions people might find. I can't remember exactly all that, but it was a pretty thick and effective manual. And I had no idea what Wind Cave was like. And I just remember the first day I got there, I went up and I didn't tell anybody who I was. I, I paid 50 cents, I think it was, to go on a tour, went with another ranger who, who was already there. We went down the elevator, the door opened, and I saw cave passageway, and I thought, wow, this is where I'm going to be. And I thought this was really cool. And cave was different, because the only cave I had been in up to then was Carlsbad Caverns. Carlsbad is known for stalactites and stalagmites, for dripstone formed yeah. by dripping water. Wind Cave doesn't have much of that. It has this unusual boxwork formation, and it's complex, like a, like a big sponge of Swiss cheese. So it's, it's very, very different from other caves. Not as big and open as Carlsbad, more intimate. So I thought it was really neat, really interesting, because it was different, yeah. different from my one experience. How has, I'm curious to know, the, you know, from the manual that you first got when you arrived to some of the interpretation today, especially as it relates to, like my question is how has that changed, but especially as it relates to the indigenous people and the stories of Wind Cave, how have you seen that evolve over your career? I can remember in the visitor center, which was very sparse and very small back then, the building's been, was enlarged and expanded in 1980 uh, to have more exhibit space. There were exhibits that casually mentioned that there were native people in the area and that the native people prize, prized past tense the hills. Until I heard a story one day that a native person came in and said, that is incorrect, we still prize the hills today. So that exhibit was changed. So there was honestly very little mention other than they had been around. And I think, I think more people will realize that um, as time went by, that there was more to it than this, that this was a sacred site. There's archeological evidence in the park of native presence, this like projectile points, stone circles, which might represent where uh, teepees had been set up. So we knew there was more to it, but there really doesn't, you don't really get the big push until more recently. And I think that comes with the current Secretary of the Interior. Her name is Deb Halland. She's native. Part of her agenda is to make sure that native lore, native connection to national parks uh, is better known because, and, and I've read the magazine NPCA, National Parks Magazine, produced by National Parks Conservation Association. There was a big article recently about native presence in, in national parks, including Wind Cave. Many of the features in the parks were considered sacred or iconic or, or spiritual to native folk long before these areas became national parks. I think there's a feeling that these stories get told and that the public in general, the public is aware of the native presence and the native stories. Yeah. After 50 plus years, 55 plus years, how has your um, relationship with the cave changed? I think I realize more now about management concerns, about keeping things natural. 
the cave itself doesn't really change much. Geologic change is extremely slow. You really don't see much. But you can learn things from, from past, I don't know, activities. For instance, back in 1967, the early years, there was a maintenance person down in the cave with a propane torch drying the trails. And mm. the purpose for there was to make the trails safer for the public. But you were putting, you were heating up the cave unnaturally, putting fossil fuel exhaust into the cave. Not a bright idea. Yeah, I can understand for protecting people, but for protecting the resource, no. And I think people have to become more aware of that. We've changed the light systems, for instance, to try to minimize algae growth. Because whenever you put lights in a cave that's totally dark, normally all the time, you get enough photosynthesis occurring to grow green plants, then you have to mitigate that problem. So management issues become more apparent. What, what do visitors delight in, in the cave, especially the children? Turning out the lights, giving them total <laughs> darkness. I think they, they like that. A lot of times you'll hear kids come into a certain room and say, oh, this, this is my room. This is my bedroom. This is where I'm going to live. And oh. which is okay. And then, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this then, is my room. <laughs> and then someday they have to tell them, it's always going to be this temperature down here, and you're going to get <laughs> cold after a while. I think kids probably look off into the little holes and maybe wonder where they go, because, the, the, as I said, the cave is such a complex system. You plan to stay for a year. You've been there 55 summers. What made you put down roots in this place that you were unsure you even wanted to go? Well, I think because I had such a, such a wonderful time that, that first summer and made lifelong friends. At the end of that summer, that first summer, I had my final interview with my supervisor, and I said, this is great, but I'm going to go some, to another national park next year. And he said, well, we spent time and effort training you. Why don't you come back for a second summer? And I figured, okay, that was easy. <laughs> then I wouldn't have to fill out one of those awful applications. <laughs> right. And I could not come back in the summer of 69. I had other, other things going on in my life. I couldn't come back. I had gotten my master's degree. I had gone another year at a different school, graduate school, by working toward a doctorate. But I was tired of school. I lost my, you know, lost my mojo on that, I guess. Yeah. I wound up going home, spending the summer of 1969 home, living with my parents. And no, not in their basement, because New York City apartments don't have basements. <laughs> I have to clarify that. So when fall of 69 rolled around, I figured, okay, you better earn your keep. Find another job. I called up a central office for the National Park Service in New York. There are many units of the National Park System associated with the history and you know, historic figures. I wound up working at the Statue of Liberty for about seven months, wow. from late September to, to early May. And the time I was there, I started getting homesick for the cave. I started feeling like I was yearning. I need to go back. I need to go back. I need to go back. And when I did go back, the, the two summers I had worked there in 67 and 8, I started mid-June. And those wonderful families had already been there. And so I had to sort of fit in as the odd guy out. And that wasn't too hard. But in seven, 1970, I started early. They needed me by May 15th. And I got to greet and meet and greet the families when they came back. And it was like the best homecoming ever, the mm -hmm. best family reunion ever. And I knew this place was in my bones, in my soul. I said, this has to be a part of my life.
Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This weekend, hundreds of artisans from across the state will gather on the sidewalks of Sioux Falls. It is the 60th annual Sidewalk Arts Festival at the Washington Pavilion. And with me now in the Kirby Family Studio, we have Katherine Holtz and Emma Shequin. Katherine is Development Coordinator for the Pavilion. Emma is a Development Associate. Welcome. Thanks for being here, Emma. Thanks for having us. Catherine, hey. Thanks, thanks for having us, Lori. We were talking before off mic, and uh, this is one of my favorite uh, weekends in oh, Sioux yeah. Falls um, of the summer, oh, of the year, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, because summer's not over yet. You get this big, big thrill. So help people who haven't traveled yet from around the region to the Sidewalk Arts Festival. Tell them what they're in for. So it's on the streets surrounding the Washington Pavilion, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It is blocks and blocks of various artisans so painters potters sculptors jewelry makers kind of anything and everything you can think of you'll probably find it at sidewalk arts festival and there are vendors from all over the state all over the region i've got everywhere in south dakota pretty much represented iowa minnesota nebraska i've got people coming all the way from oklahoma you've got it down to a science too i mean there's food there's bathrooms there's maps there's There's, you know informational folks well how has this evolved i mean 60 years um from its beginning what's new so the newest thing this year is we've added a beer garden so a little extra place for refreshment similar to um enjoy the entertainment for the day sit in the shade Uh, we've got a big tent up so if it's hot have you heard the term shop till you drop yes so we want you to (laughs) shop and then drop into the beer garden excellent enjoy your refreshment after and then shop again yep Hot, <laughs> hot tip, you'll run into my sister who works the WP at the beer garden. Um, say hi to Sarah. Tell her you listen to the show. You'll get nothing in exchange for that other than Sarah's great. <laughs> there's, no, there's no discount yeah. coupon here. <laughs> She'll say hi. Emma, tell me a little bit about um, what you delight in from the artists who meet each other, the the connections and relationships that actually happen at Sidewalk Arts every year. Yeah, well, it's just a wonderful community event. Um, like Catherine hit on, we we hit from all around the region, and so just everyone coming together, um, meeting with local artists, meeting with people from far away. Um, it's a great event to just connect with someone, you know, someone new who might be your new favorite artist or someone who's been here for decades that you know you you look forward to seeing every single year yeah we used to go back and get we visit this one artist's booth every year and we would buy one piece from that same artist every oh, I love that. single year That's still so cool still hanging in homes awesome. um rain or shine yes absolutely um and what are you looking at? Any, anything that you're looking forward to obviously we're going to see you hanging out at the beer garden checking out <laughs> the entertainment and a little bit of shade um or Relief from the rain if it does sprinkle on us yeah. a little bit. No big deal. No big deal. Yeah. 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 Anything just, you're looking forward to? That's uh, It's just such a fun day. The, the energy on the streets is just infectious. Everybody's excited. Everybody's ready to shop and meet new people and find new things. And our yeah. our artists are very excited. Everyone I've heard from this week is so excited to be here. They yeah. look forward to this festival. Yeah. The Visual Arts Center and the Pavilion have really redefined and captivated this artistic space. So this is a place not only to wear your walking shoes and, and you know come to what feels like a fair-like atmosphere, mm-hmm. but it's also a place to celebrate arts and culture. 
in, in the entire region. For sure. All right. Nine to five uh, Saturday and Sunday? Just, just Saturday. Saturday. Just Saturday. Nine to five Saturday. Nine oh, to five on Saturday. Nine One to day. Five on Saturday. One day. Don't miss it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, you guys. We really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Today, Larry Rohr and David Hurst are bringing you some truly fresh tracks, including a refreshed track. Hurstrud is a native of Sturgis, and he brings his years in the music industry to this conversation. He and Larry dive into the remake of a classic and introduce you to a few performers you may have never heard of. Take a listen. And David, this is always one of my favorite talks, and we have new music or music that's been refreshed after a couple of decades. Tell us about what's coming up. First up is a remake of this 1989 classic. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Billy Joel's hit covered time between 1948 and 1989. The rapid-fire lyrics highlighted important political, cultural, scientific, and sporting events of the era. And of course, there were uh, parodies, most notably by The Simpsons. And now we have probably the best remake I've heard by the pop-punk band Fall Out Boy. They've uh, released eight albums, including six consecutive number ones. Their fire version covers the years from 1989 to 2023 with references to Harry Potter, Brexit, George Floyd, and of course, Donald Trump. Even looking at the official video that they have online, I'm not sure if it's a sign of the times, if it's what they were thinking, but it seems a little darker. Maybe we're living in a dark period, yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Fallout Boy. Well, the Pretenders are back. Let's, let's cover the ground of what's new with the Pretenders. They're an English-American rock band and that released what is considered one of the best debut albums of all time in 1979. Now, if you aren't familiar with The Pretenders, and I can't believe that you aren't, here is something from their 1979 debut. album is called Relentless. Do you think they've aged pretty well? Is there continuity in sound for Pretenders fans? The new album is Relentless, and I think it's one of the band's best. A bunch of myths, a bunch of tales, to take the wind out of our sails. They even say that we must die. I don't believe that that's a lie. These folks have been through the ringer. And they still have lyrics like, we don't have to get fat, and we don't have to get old. <laughs> I have one for you. We're both in book clubs, and this one was inspired by a friend of mine known to travel to different parts of the country if there's a music event he wants to take in. And he's taking in one in the Twin Cities in a couple of weeks. I want you to listen to a little music from The Tallest Man on Earth. On the drive to New York City for a twinkle in their 
Now that, of course, is a stra- is a stage name. It's actually Kristen Matson, who's a Swedish singer-songwriter, and he's only five seven. But I love that he bills himself as the tallest man on earth. If you listen to several cuts of Matson, you're going to hear the sound of Bob Dylan. New album out is called Henry Street, and if you're intrigued, he's going to be playing in the Twin Cities, going to be playing at the St. Paul Palace Theater on September 19th. I think that's a Tuesday. I see a clearing in your state of mind. We yourself get thrown around. I'm going to breathe and work for every little part I know. I'm going to breathe and work for every little part I know. Got to tell you, I would heartily recommend this gentleman. I've got a couple of his albums and listened to some music after we started talking mm-hmm. about this. He's phenomenal. Finally, as you already know, I love finding new bands and artists. And this week I have one I really, really like. The lady is Mae Simpson. She's from Minneapolis. She and her seven-piece band, also called Mae Simpson, have already released two EPs and their debut album Chandelier and Bloom comes out this month. Cap guns and smoke from our fake cigarettes We'd act like we needed a light Pin cards to our bikes And tear off in the gravel And we race the first stop sign If I could wait Musically, it's kind of a heady mix of funk soul, blues, and rock and roll. Now, I gotta tell you something, the song that really captured my attention was a song called Cap Gun. May Simpson, I just, I think you'll like the song, I think you'll like the album. This is someone who is on the right track in their career. Their live shows are just exciting. May Simpson. There's your homework, May Simpson, with Cap Gun, a new EP, and watch for more music. If you're in the Twin Cities area on the 19th, it's the tallest man on earth. You'll see him standing 5'7 on the stage at the Palace Theater. And there's a new album from The Pretenders. It's called Relentless. And then there's the update on the Billy Joe classic, We Didn't Start the Fire. And Fallout Boy has that. So check the update of the latest history from 1989 to 2023. Our musical guide, as always, is David Herzrud. Thank you, David. Hey, good listening. If you missed any of that, you can go online, sdpb.org slash music, and find those recommendations again. All right, Prairie Songs featuring Humbletown and the Cloverfold is happening tonight in Aberdeen. It's at... uh, Central Parks. Music starts at 7 local time. We're going to close our show with a bit of a live recording from one of the other Prairie Songs gatherings. Go to stpb.org slash tickets. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. In the Moment is produced by Alan Kester and Ari Youngeman. Kara Hetland is our executive producer. Josh Chilson is STPB's news director. 
Jordan Henderson is our videographer, and Colton Nicholson is our engineer. We thank them all this week for their assistance. I am your host, Lori Walsh, from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. <laughs>